episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. I am joined on the show with me today uh, by Kurt Nelson. Kurt is recognized as one of the leading applied behavioral scientists in the country. Kurt brings his expertise in understanding human motivation uh, to help people understand how they can influence and drive positive change. He is the co-host of two podcasts on positively applying behavioral science to life and work, Behavioral Grooves, a Chartable's top 10 global social science podcast, and Weekly Grooves. Kurt's ability to take scientific research and make it easy to understand and apply in the real world makes him a great guest. His easygoing and funny, funny demeanor make him a great guest as well. Kurt brings over 20 years of hands-on experience in applying behavioral science inside organizations and leading his own consulting and communication agency, The Lantern Group. Kurt has spoken extensively at conferences and seminars on everything from increasing employee motivation to building positive habits to the four-drive model of employee motivation to gamification. Kurt, uh, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Toby. I forget, you know, all the stuff that gets said in those intros and I just, yeah, yeah. But yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, so I, one of the things that, that caught my eye when I was just reading the, reading your bio was you were talking about uh, kind of the way you see yourself in, in kind of uh, kind of the translation of the, the science to the, the, I don't know if you'd call them the lay people or just, non-scientists, whoever, whoever you want to uh, describe, but what, uh, what, what got you interested in, in being on that, in that sort of uh, channel of, of communication? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story. So I, I have a co-host, Tim Houlihan, um, for Behavioral Grooves, and Tim and I have known each other for years. He, we've done different pieces of, of work. He worked at a company that I did a lot of projects with and various different things. So we've known each other for years. He left that company about four years ago and and then we met up afterwards and I said we have to do something we just have similar interests various different aspects and so as part of that what we we landed on was actually doing a meetup and so the intent for the meetup was a local gathering once a month of people who are going to be interested in behavioral science and the idea was to sit there and to bring in speakers but also just to have the conversations to help you know, explain for us to learn, but to build this community of, of people. And then by chance, we ended up uh, having a podcast, um, which has now taken over and done a, a much better than the, than the meetup ever did. But on, on that point, our, our second guest was James Heyman, who had written, co-written uh, an article with Dan Ariely. Um, so, we knew that when we were going to do the meetup, it was going to be 25, 30 people at most. And we're going, gosh, this is a pretty, you know, a pretty interesting conversation that we're going to have with them. Wouldn't it be great if we could um, bring it out to, to more people, which was then, all right, Tim as a musician. And so I said, you got recording equipment. Why don't we just do a podcast and different pieces of that? And from that, it, that, that kind of kept with the same thing of bringing up this information and, and expanding this community of people who are thinking about behavioral science and learning about it in various different aspects. And so as part of that learning, part of that mission that we want, part of that is translation, right? We're talking with uh, researchers who are using academic terms and are speaking mostly to other academics and the idea of being able to take that research in the form that it is, but then being able to translate it into ways that people can apply it and can use it in their own life, either work or, or their family life or their friends or however that would be, is really how you build that community out and get people interested. So that's, that's a long roundabout way of getting to your uh, initial question there. Before we go any further, can we just define behavioral science for the listeners? <laughs> well, in behavioral science, it's, it's a really great question because behavioral science is this 
in in my perspective this is this is the way that i define it it's this amalgamation of a variety of other things so it's this anything to do with how uh, people behave or how they think. And so it encompasses psychology, sociology, social psychology, behavioral economics, economics, anthropology, neuroscience. So you and, 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 and yours would probably fall under that bigger banner in the way that it's described. Basically, when I'm talking about behavioral science, it's really the trying to understand why we do what we do um, and why we think what we think. And that is not always the way that we would anticipate things. And I think that's what I love about the, the behavioral science aspect. You're bringing, you're, you're pulling on resources from a variety of other um, disciplines. And sometimes those insights that you get are really contrary to what we would think if you would ask somebody, oh, in this situation, is this how you would behave? And you go, yes. And then you're actually going, well, that's not how we behave because of these things. And that's the underlying components there. So it sounds like definitely the the integration of just the variety of these different fields is something that that you definitely have to be able to you definitely have to be able to like hold your own in a conversation with a like an uh, you know economic person versus a psychologist or a neuroscientist. So you kind of have to like know a little about everything. Yeah, it gets a little it gets a little crazy, and you know from that you can't necessarily know everything, right? And 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 we definitely don't have a deep insight into different pieces. So my undergraduate was in economics and marketing and more business line. Then my PhD is in psychology. Uh, and then, so so those are some of the deeper areas to go into. But as, as part of that, you have to understand sociology. You have to understand, as you said, neuroscience. So, I mean, it's just, for me, the fascinating part is just, why we're doing what we're doing. So whatever that comes from is, is interesting for me. So I've, you know, top of the waves into neuroscience, probably nowhere near what you could talk about, right? Not, not even close, not even going to be putting on ourselves on the, on the, on the same level by any means, but you know, I can talk to some of the brain functions. I can talk to, you know, some of the neurochemicals that are going in there and what they do specifically as it relates to some of the areas of, of interest that, from a work perspective that we're doing, which is motivation and goals and engagement and various different pieces around that. So, so you take, you take that broad range, but you always try to, you're, you're interpreting it through your own lens and through your own, your own experience. And then hopefully uh, you learn more whenever you're talking with somebody and that is just added to that repertoire, to that library that you have. What are your uh, favorite aspects of behavioral science to, to teach people? Or, or also, I guess part of that question could be, what do people that you're teaching, uh, what do they find to be like the most interesting or applicable kind of material within, within the field? I mean, it, it sounds all very relevant to all of our lives, but is there anything specifically that stands out? You know, there's, I think there's a, there's a number of different things and it depends on, on the day and the person and, and, and who is there. But I think one of the big things that I always, particularly if I'm, I'm talking with people from business, but even in our general lives, one of the things that we tend to do is, is, is we look at life and, in, and when we're in our cold state, as, as Danny, Danny Kahneman talks about in our system two thinking, you know, we, we think of ourselves as being rational creatures, that we're doing these things out of a rational intent, that there is an outcome, that we have a goal and, and our actions are driving to that goal. In reality, when we look and we explore human behavior and even human thoughts, is that we are emotional creatures and that we respond to um, impulses and heuristics and variety of other factors that have no rational component. And you know, that some of these are, are from the framing effects of how you frame uh, communication. It, some of it is from uh, elements that of automaticity or priming, behavioral priming. And so a couple of the, the pieces that I, I like to bring in because I think they are very, they showcase this uh, a lot. Um, one is there was research done uh, on, on framing. Basically, how you communicate something impacts how people perceive it. And that, that doesn't seem 
too difficult, but this one was one where it was a university and the university was trying to get people to register for a class early. And so they sent out to two different groups, two different emails about that registration. In one, they sent out the registration that said, hey, register before August 1st and get a 15% discount. In the other group they, they sent, it was, hey, register after August 1st and you're gonna, uh, there's a 15% penalty on that. So financially, economically, if you're looking at a classical economics perspective, you would say that makes absolutely no difference. And if you ask most people, they're gonna say, well, they're the same, right? The, the amount I pay before August 1st is the same either way how it goes, it wouldn't matter. But when you looked at the results, the results were significant. So 60, don't quote me on this, I think it was like 67% of people who got the first one, the discount, registered early versus 93% of the people who got the, the penalty framed message. So by changing just the way that you frame something, it changes the behaviors that result from it. And this is one of the things that I think from a behavioral science perspective is really fascinating to me because if we think about it from a rational perspective, it shouldn't make a difference. And yet it does. And there are a number of those types of things that influence us all the time. One of my, another one of my favorite ones that I, I talk about is John Barge, who has done a lot of research on automaticity and priming as one that is talking about you're drinking a cup of coffee here, right? And so he did an experiment basically where they had people interview a person in a room, but the real experiment happened before and the elevator ride up the compliant person or the, the co-conspirator in the thing had to drop something and ask this person to hold a cup. And either the cup was either a warm cup of coffee or in the other, in the, in the other set, it was a cold uh, iced coffee. And so it was a cold cup. And then they looked at the results of how people rated the person that they then subsequently interviewed. So that was the only thing. People who held the warm cup of coffee rated that person much more higher. A, they were more likable, they were kinder, they were nicer, all of these different factors. Again, if you think of how you would describe somebody as a warm person, those are the types of attributes that they attributed to that person. People that held the cold, the iced coffee, um, attributed more uh, variables and personality traits that were like that cold, distant, far away, did not perceive them as, as the same. So again, fascinating work that you go, that shouldn't make a difference. And when you ask people, when they ask people about that, they said, no, that didn't influence me at all. And yet that's some of the outcomes. And there's lots of different types of those kinds of examples. Another example I was just thinking of that I'm assuming is related is like how uh, items that we purchase oftentimes end in 99 cents, yeah. right? Compared to if it was just the dollar yeah. amount, right? Where it's like, it's only a penny off, but it is that is that kind of along the, the same lines of this? And there's some really fascinating, actually, it's, it's interesting. It was fascinating research on that, right? So this idea that, yeah, $2.99 versus $3, it's a penny. It shouldn't make a difference. And actually, if you were to price something at $3.98 versus $3.99, the amount of difference in that, in that would be um, minuscule. It's, it's funny because this is one of the research when I was actually getting my MBA, I took a consumer research class that was looking into, you know, different things like this that got me interested in this that then subsequently led to me getting a PhD. That's a, that's a whole aside, but it's, it's an interesting piece. So yeah, we, we tend to, because it's 399 and this is interesting because people in, um, uh, in Western cultures, will make that, they will, they will then move that, that uh, way that we frame that within our brains as more closer to $3. So it feels like it's a deal, $3.99. We then go, oh, that's $3 as opposed to going, that's only a penny away from four, but we don't do that. Now there's a difference in context when you go and you look at people in um, Eastern cultures because of the way that they, they view the world, they're, they're much more of a context dependent, they're high context. Um, societies and so they're looking at things around it and there's been research that that indicates that suggests that when you use a 299 uh, you know uh, pricing model in in a high context society that they're more uh, apropos about that they're, in other words they're looking like 
why are you trying to trick me? You know, I, this is closer to, to $3 as opposed to $2. What are you trying to do? And so it doesn't work as well in those types of societies. So fascinating. Again, one of the other pieces you talked about, like what are the, some of the things that we always bring up when we're talking with people about behavioral science? And one of the ones that I always try to reinforce both with the clients that I work with, but also just people in general, is context matters. So context isn't just the environment that you're in, it's the, it's the people that you're around, but it's the culture you've been raised in. So all of those factors influence our behavior in ways that we may or may not be aware of. I wanted to go back to the first example that you brought up, which was in terms of like the, the uh, it was like the one that was, there was a group of students that were told that it was like discounted versus like there was gonna be a yep. penalty or whatever. Is that related to uh, risk aversion in terms of us being more uh, apt to kind of run away from danger rather than pursue the reward? Yeah, so th this risk aversion part is is there. There's some work um, by that was done by Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky uh, about loss aversion, right? And so they did research that said, look, we tend to we tend to uh, look at losses as being that the pain from a loss is twice as painful as the subsequent gain. Uh, or pleasure that we get from a, a similar gain. So in other words, if I lose $100, that feels twice as painful to me as the pleasure that I get if I found $100, right? Um, there's been some recent research that that is looking at the validity of that and different things, but it has been one of probably the most replicated free kind of components out there. And there's lots of, of research that that supports that. And so again, when you think about that, that discount is a gain right? You're thinking about that. It's framed as a gain in your mind. So, all right, there's, there's value there. But when you frame it as a penalty, that's a loss. And so when that loss comes in, that becomes, you know, really painful. And so you want to avoid that pain. And now I'm not saying that you should always frame things from a loss and gain things. There's various different factors that go into play on in there. But those are some of the factors that you look at when you think about how are you structuring the way that you're communicating with people, particularly if you're trying to drive some specific behavior or behavior change. Do you have a, a favorite group of people to work with? Because I assume you probably teach these different uh, techniques and, and just understanding to, to a variety of, of different audiences is there like i mean a specific like ceos or or any any specific segment that sticks out that you really like to to work with people that are open to uh having these ideas uh, that they might actually take uh action on them um so yeah i you know love working with a variety of people variety of different functions within organizations senior level leaders are typically the ones that can make a difference and so if, if we're actually trying to go in into an organization and, and, and bring some value uh, those other people but there is there is an element where we we tend to as humans right we um, we like our status quo and and if we believe that we are rational creatures and you're coming in and saying we're not as rational as we think that can be very dis concerning for people and you have to have a certain willingness to be open to having some maybe you know elements where you're going oh this thing that I thought was true is no longer true and certain people can do that better right certain people are just more open than you know to to new ideas and fresh fresh ways of thinking and those are the people that I, I like working with. I have one client who I, I absolutely love. He's just, he's the most inquisitive person in the world. And he, he'll go, I, I think this is, is, you know, tell me, and you know, or, or, what, what do you think about this? And he's always looking to, to reshape his, his worldview based on evidence. And those are the people that I really love to work with. Awesome. What are, what are some of the other kind of like fundamental principles, if you will, kind of that drive all of this that like we're talking about in terms of 
you know, in, in the bio, I, I think I mentioned, uh, you know, you kind of really focusing on understanding human motivation. So what are the other big aspects of motivation that, that are kind of driving all of these, these sort of, uh, all of what we see, what, what's, yeah. what's driving all of it? Well, multi- motivation is a multifaceted component. And if it, motivation was simple, uh, I wouldn't have a job. We'd all be able, we'd all be super fit. We'd all be eating the right foods. We'd all be doing all of those factors that we would like to do because we could hack our own motivation and we would be doing that. The fact of the matter is, is motivation is relatively complex, different people, different times, different situations you're going to be motivated by different things. Now, there's a couple underlying components to that, right? There is this element of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, this idea that uh, do we find something in and of itself to be motivating doing it? So if you like putting puzzles together, uh, there's an intrinsic value for you of putting a puzzle together. You don't have to be paid to have an extrinsic reward, something at the end that says, I'm going to put this puzzle together for that. And then there are some things that we really need to have an extrinsic motivation aspect applied to it, whether that be a reward at the end, I'm doing this because I will get paid X, or even things like uh, being ranked number one, going to you know competition, various different facets of that. And if you look at uh, video games, there's an aspect of, of both intrinsic and extrinsic rewards in most of their, your video games and different pieces. Um, there is a model, and there's lots of different models of motivation out there as well. It, within work, there's a model that I like. It's the four drive model. I think I, I, you mentioned it at the, in the beginning. Uh, it was originally developed by Paul Lawrence and Noria, who were both at Harvard. Paul Lawrence has subsequently passed on, but uh, Noria is still the, he's the dean of the business school there. But their, their model basically looked at, um, when we're thinking about work, there's four underlying drives. So it's a drive model of motivation, which has its positives and negatives. But they're basically saying, look, we're driven um, by our need to acquire and achieve. So that's the extrinsic piece, right? I, I will do X because you're going to pay me Y. I'm going to acquire resources and things that are going to make my life better, provide me utility, give me satisfaction. So I'm going to do this in order to get that. Um, but the second, second drive that they talk about is bond and belong. This idea that we're social creatures, that we we like to be liked and we will do a lot from a we're motivated in order to maintain those relationships and build those positive relationships and so again within work when we think about that we do a lot for people on our team that we're not necessarily going to be rewarded for but we're doing that to help the team out we're sharing information we're giving them we're we're brainstorming with them all these different factors and we're doing it to maintain those positive relationships the third piece is uh, this idea of challenge and comprehend that we're inquisitive, that we're we're learning creatures, and we're we're motivated by this intrinsic idea to be to to to, to learn, but also to be challenged. To that we like to have goals set for us, and even just those goals in and of themselves can be motivational. Gary Latham and and John Locke have done a lot of work on that. This idea of that, hey, if I have, if you put a challenge in front of me, I'm going to do it. I'll go back to a video game. If you go and you master level one of a video game and you go to level two and the, it's the same challenge, in other words, it, it doesn't get any more difficult for you. Uh, and then you pass that one really easy and you go to level three and there's no difference. You, you're not going to continue on with that game for very long because you just don't have the motivation. There's no, there's no drive there to do that. And the last drive from the four drive model is this drive, which is oftentimes some of the harder, harder one to, to, to kind of comprehend. And it's the define and defend. So it's this idea, Lawrence and Noria talked about it, that evolutionary, look, we, we were tribal. So we lived in these small clans, we lived in these tribes. And in order to survive, we had to protect the clan, we had to protect the tribe. And we don't necessarily have clans or tribes anymore, but we can feel, we can have that same sort of feeling for groups and organizations and teams that we're part of. And so we will defend them against outward threats. And the defined part is making sure if you 
if your purpose is aligned with that organization, you define your purpose and that purpose is aligned with the organization, you're much more likely to feel that deep end piece of that. So, so that's the, from a motivational perspective, that's a, it's a framework to be able to use. It doesn't, it doesn't by any means capture the entirety of how we get motivated or engage as elements of self-identity. There's elements of social pressure and social norms. There's elements of a variety of other factors that come into play, but there's some simple ones to kind of help in putting some framework and giving people a, a good understanding, I think, from what they can do and how they can influence that. So let's talk about the the applications of these these sort of this framework say to like a business setting like what what does a manager need to know in terms of if they want to kind of maximize the the performance of employees when it comes yeah. to you know taking you know obviously you could there's ways to intrinsically motivate people to just want to do a good job to serve the company's purpose or or mission but you could also throw in incentives or bonuses like how uh, how do you see how do you see it playing out in in a business setting yeah it, it's fascinating right because when we think about work you know you know volunteering is very different than work we we do volunteering mostly because of some intrinsic motivation we're aligned again that's that defined piece we're aligned with the mission of the of the nonprofit that we're doing and so we're giving of our time we're giving of our energy and our our, our knowledge in order to help that and make that successful because it it aligns with who we are as self-identity and various different pieces in work you know there's an there's an element of a transactional basis with work which is this i i come in and provide you with these uh this role that i'm i'm doing and in return for that you will pay me x now if it is just that transactional component you're not going to get a very engaged or dedicated or creative person typically typically there needs to be some of that intrinsic element that you talked about that idea that, hey, not only am I getting paid for this, but this is something that is interest of me, that there is this element that I'm on a team and I like my team. And so I want to make sure that we're doing good as a team, that bonding component that I talked about. So whatever you can do in order to help ensure that you have positive relationships as a manager within your team, that's a good thing because in the end, it will help in, in motivation. Also, is it, is it challenging? Are, are you doing routine kind of things that are just boring for people? Are you adding in uh, different elements that bring intrigue, that get people saying, this is new, this is novel, I'm learning something, I'm, I'm having to apply some various different factors to, to what we're doing? And is the work itself interesting? And, and I know sometimes that's hard, right? If you're in a manufacturing plant and people are pumping out, you know, just doing the same routine over and over and over again, that may be more difficult, but you can do different things. You can have job rotations. You can have different aspects of, of competitions to, to make it more fun, to have a, a, an element of challenge in going into those aspects of it. So there's a variety of different ways of looking at how do you apply some of these principles in order to engage and increase motivation. And one of the, you know, there, there's some interesting pieces in, in the line of work from around that where there's been research that has indicated that, hey, after a certain amount of money, money no longer motivates. And so there's been some people who argue that you shouldn't use uh, incentives or, or additional kind of bonuses in order to try to motivate people. There's been other research that kind of shows that that isn't necessarily true. So I'm a, I am a believer that you should be thinking about how you're utilizing extrinsic uh, rewards along with developing and creating the role and the work that people are doing so that it is as intrinsically motivating as well, and that there's a combination and that they can, they can feed off of each other and that there is a, a way of being able to, to get the best out of both. It rewards people financially or otherwise, but it also gives them some intrinsic value for the work that they do. How about what, what does a uh, behavioral science say about, you know, how, how do you see it uh, kind of, or, or do you talk about 
you know, behavioral science in terms of, say, just human relationships outside of work, say, yeah. friendships, dating, whatever. What are some of the biggest things that, that you think, I mean, it could see that going a million different directions, but what are some of the biggest, like, applications or concepts that, that you think people should know when it comes to, to just having more successful interactions in our lives in general and lives different general. things. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much and you can go in so many different ways. One of the people that we interviewed um, was a, a researcher, um, uh, Logan Yuri, who, who wrote um, uh, don't die alone. I believe that's the name of the book. Anyway, uh, don't quote me on that. And I, I, I apologize, Logan. Um, I should know the name of your book by, by heart, but she writes about relationships and dating and this whole idea of, of, of how we do. And, and one of the factors that she brings in is, is looking at a bunch of research on, on dating um, and dating, particularly in, in the today's age with, you know, the, utilizing uh, apps and various different pieces. But she said, look, we have different, different people have these different models in their head, these different mindsets about um, who that perfect partner is. And there's, there's the mindset that some people have that is, look, this person is 95% of everything that I want, but there might be somebody out there that is 96 or 97%. So I'm going to continue looking various different pieces versus the person who says, this person is 95% of everything I want. Oh my gosh, this is, this is fantastic. And so it's, it's a maximizer model versus a satisficer model going back to Herbert Simon um, from the fifties and various different pieces, but it's just understanding your own mental models and being able to, then say, is this the most appropriate mental model for me to be in a, in a healthy, good, positive relationship? And I will tell you that the maximizer model isn't. It, it is not good because you will always be looking for the next better thing as opposed to focusing in on, on your different things. And so you can, you can take that to heart and you can kind of look at, at those and you can say, here's a, here's a threshold, here's a minimum of, of different pieces of that. Another person that we interviewed, one of our, our, our favorites is, is um, Annie Duke. Annie Duke wrote uh, Thinking in Bets, best-selling author, is a decision scientist looking at how we decide, how we make decisions, uh, different things. But she's also a world-class poker player. And so she won the world poker championship. I forget what it's called. You know, she, she, but she, she won like $5 million in her career when she was doing that. But she brings this concept of, hey, we tend to think about when we make decisions, we, we often put things in black and white terms or we think about things as, as 100% or 0%. And she said, what you realize from playing poker is that you, there's always an element of luck and chance in our, in, in the outcome. And so you're always looking at things as, as percentages, as bets. And by just doing that, by kind of looking in, so if you're trying to make a decision in, in your life, like I'm going to buy this car, is this the right car to buy? Right. And you kind of go, well, I'm, I'm about 80% sure that this is the right car to buy. All right, well, is 80% enough for you? Going back to the satisfizer and, and, the, and the maximizer piece. But it also gets to this point where then when you start seeing other information or you get different information, it lessens what's called confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is this idea that um, if I have a pre-held belief and I get information about that belief, that is contrary to what I believe. In other words, if I thought this is the, I want to buy a Porsche or a Tesla or a Geo Prism, I don't know, whatever the, whatever the car that I've fallen in love with, and this is the perfect car. And if I just have that full belief and that's saying that this is 80% of the car, then if I get information that says, oh, hey, that Porsche, you know, their, their repair records is horrible. Well, confirmation bias works at a subconscious level and it makes me, I'll discount that information. I won't look at it. It won't get into the factors of, of actually looking at buying that car. But if I'm looking at it from an 80% or thinking in probabilities perspective, 
then I'm much more likely to take that information and say, all right, maybe it's not 80%, maybe it's, maybe it's 75%, right? It, it lowers that down. So it makes for better decision-making as we're moving forward. Um, and that was a long-winded answer to a very short question. <laughs> I apologize, yeah. Toby, but, but there's like lots of those different factors. And that's what I, again, you, you mentioned, like you got to know a little bit about all this different stuff. And that's what's fascinating for me is all of these factors that come into play, all the biases and heuristics that we use as humans to make our decisions and to drive our behaviors. And, you, you know, lifetimes are spent on this and you're still just touching the surface. So people that, if you, I guess, kind of understand the principles that we're, that we're talking about, you could sort of be more aware of, of how all these different biases and heuristics are actually coming into play, like in your life, rather than just kind of operating, going blind. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Now, I will tell you uh, that knowing doesn't necessarily change our behavior. So that's another bias that we have, right? There's, a, there's this element that, that knowledge in and of itself won't necessarily make us change our behavior. But having that knowledge, we can then go in and set up the environment or set up systems to help us in those behavior changes. For, so for instance, if I, I know I'm on a diet, I know I shouldn't be eating the Oreo cookies that are in the cupboard downstairs, but man, Oreo cookies at three in the afternoon when I go down and I'm hungry and, and when the Oreo is right there in front of me, is really hard to 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 stop for at least for myself from from grabbing that Oreo and and, and eating it. So I know that, right? I, I know that there's this difference between being in a cold rational state versus being in a hot emotional state. So one of the things I know is that if actually I take those Oreos and I move them down to the basement so that when I go to the cupboard to open up the cupboard, the Oreos aren't there. If I really want an Oreo, they're in the basement. I can go down and get one, but it's not going to have that. It's not going to release the dopamine release, which I'm sure, you know, from a neuroscience perspective, that wanting re element, it's not triggering that release in the moment when I open up and I see the Oreos right there. And therefore, by moving those Oreos in advance down to the basement, I'm less likely to eat that Oreo at three o'clock when I go down because I have some hunger pains and I'm more likely to eat something more healthy, particularly if I set those healthy things in advance where those are the things that I see. So you can set up the environment in order to drive the behaviors that you want and do that in advance. And so those are some of the factors that we, you know, from a behavioral science perspective that you're trying to apply. Okay. Any other big uh, aspects of behavioral science that we haven't covered yet that you think, <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like such a diverse field, like that it really is applicable to like almost everything in life. But it wouldn't, if, if you think about the, the description that I gave about it earlier, it really does touch. I mean, if you think of any type of human behavior or our thinking, then you can, th there's an aspect of behavioral science that applies to it. So I think there's there's a, there's a lot. I, I mentioned confirmation bias. So there's a one of the 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 factors that actually came from behavioral economics. And behavioral economics again was this uh, combination of bringing psychology into the economics field, and both are trying to describe why we why we do what we do, right? And and economics is coming from a very financial economic motivated piece, and psychology is coming from this difference. But there's this overlap. Um, but behavioral economics, they started listing out what are called these behavioral biases that we have. And again, it's pulling from sociology and psychology and various different pieces of that. But I think the understanding some of those, those biases can be very powerful, again, to helping us understand why we do what we do and then setting up those systems and environments in order to not do that. But I think there's a couple that are just really powerful. And one of those is confirmation bias. And I, I kind of call this the mother of all biases, because in my opinion, this is, this is Kurt's opinion on this, we, we, 
it's really hard to change our behaviors or to change our thinking if we can't even realize and don't even see the contrary evidence to that belief that we currently have. And that's how confirmation bias works, right? I said it already. If you have a pre-held belief, when you get information uh, uh, that is contrary to that belief, it gets discounted. And it doesn't happen at a conscious level. It happens at a subconscious level. So we don't even know that it's going on. And vice versa, if we see evidence that supports it, that gets that gets magnified. And so it becomes, you know, much larger. So, so it's this loop that just pulls us down. And so that one, if you look at the, you know, some of the elements from a national level of, of just polarization between political parties, if you look at elements around different racial discrepancies and, and, and racial biases and various different factors, a lot of that, when you're exploring that with a behavioral science lens, comes down to confirmation bias. And the, the reason why you can't talk to your uncle because your uncle is on the other political spectrum than you are is, isn't because you're, you, it's this idea that he's actually seeing the world differently than you are because of his confirmation bias or more likely because of not more likely but because of your confirmation bias as well and so the, that's that's the last piece there there's a bunch of others there's you know the fundamental attribution error there's um cognitive dissonance which is this idea that kind of plays into confirmation bias there's a whole bunch of other biases and you can google behavioral biases and there's like lists of two three hundred of them and read them and and they're just fascinating insights into the world of who we are so it seems like you know the the example you gave as far as like you know having a conversation with your your uncle who's on a, a different uh, political who has a different political belief than you do you could probably spend hours arguing with that person if you guys are both in like a fixed sort of mindset where you're both coming at it from your own worldview versus maybe if you understand some of these principles, you could, instead of kind of wasting your time trying to convince someone of something, you could realize that, okay, that person believes what they believe because they have a different worldview, different set of beliefs and that you might, like there, there might not be a, a point of trying to argue with someone. Is that that's a hundred percent right and and it's not saying that you know you're going to be by 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 understanding behavioral science you're going to convince your uncle to switch you know political parties and and be on the right side of 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 whatever political side you're on right that's not the case it doesn't there's no silver bullet it doesn't really work that way but to your point understanding that there are probably things getting in the way of us being able to even look at the same piece of information and interpret that piece of information in a similar way because of some of these tricks that our brains play on us, that this confirmation bias. So, which is one of the, you know, again, favorite things. Some, some of the research on this is they gave, they gave, people that had different um, views on uh, gun rights, right? So Second Amendment, you know, freedom versus gun control. So they, they picked two different people or two different sets of, of groups. They looked at that and they gave them this article. And the article was, had some things that were positive about gun rights. And, and, then, there was, uh, and then there were some about gun control that were positive on this. And when they asked people to say, you know, what does the article prove, those people, it, it just basically reconfirmed their, their prior held belief. And they discounted the information that was contrary, and they magnified the information that was supportive. And so they talked about these, this, this symbol, this piece of information, this, this uh, article that was there, is if, if you would have asked them that it would have appeared if you wouldn't know any better that these were two very different articles. And so just understanding that coming in, we interviewed uh, Kwame Christian, who is a negotiator. And he said, 
what you really, one of the ways that we work from a negotiation perspective to actually apply some of this and to get people, because again, if you think if you're negotiating, you have a, you have an outcome and somebody else has an outcome and they may not necessarily be aligned and you have different beliefs around what's right, is he said that you come in with this compassionate curiosity, which is really this idea of when you're talking with your uncle, you know, that you have a difference in opinion on, don't try to go in and change their mind. Go in with this compassionate curiosity. Try to understand why they're doing it because when you get them to be looking at it, then they're actually, if, if they're the ones who come up with the reason for why they're thinking things and maybe questioning if that's indeed the case, they're more likely to be able to, to change. Because if we tell them something, there's a factor, a psychological factor called reactance. And so if you feel like you're being told, for instance, you know, I remember I had and this is a bad example, but I use it because it's just, it's interesting. I had some dental work done, right? And as part of that dental work, they said, you can't have popcorn. I don't really like popcorn, right? But man, because I couldn't have popcorn, what did I, what did I crave? I crave popcorn, right? I didn't, I, I don't normally crave popcorn anytime, but because I knew I couldn't have it, I craved it. And the same thing works in reverse too. If you're saying you, you, you know, you ought to believe this, right? You, you should be doing this. Our, our natural, oftentimes our natural reactance is the contrary to that, particularly if it feels like it's taking away some options or our autonomy or our freedom. And so those are factors that come into play. I have one last question for you, Kurt, and this is one that's definitely a, a self-serving one that I, I am genuinely curious to hear the answer to, but you, uh, you, run or you co-host podcasts, right? Yep. So tell me about, do you consciously apply any of the, the different aspects of behavioral science to podcasting as far as being an interviewer? Um, are there, are there, is there anything that when it comes to talking to people, interviewing people, anything that, that stands out as far as that can improve your improve someone's podcasting aptitude so uh, that's a great great question um and actually we should probably really take a a behavioral lens to to everything that we do i i will say i i haven't necessarily done it as in the interview process right i i, I haven't really looked and said, oh, are we, are we framing these things right in various different pieces? I will say that I have very specifically used some behavioral science concepts when we're trying to uh, get a guest, a, a, a high-profile guest that we want to have on the show, and we don't necessarily have an, an in with them. So in how we how we frame the communication going to them. It, we, we use some behavioral science principles. So again, if there's any connection to another person that they, uh, maybe they've, they've, they've worked with or that you were recommended to us by somebody else, which adds to a messenger effect, which is part of, of this, which they're now going to pay more attention to us because there's this connection. And again, it gets to that bonding piece. You're, you know, a friend of yours is a friend of mine kind of element of, of that. There's also elements that we look at from uh, doing some social proof pieces within there. So we talk about who some of the, the renowned guests that we've had, and we kind of lay that out with more than we probably need to, but we do it to really showcase that, hey, we've had a lot of really um, popular guests on here and therefore you want to be part of that crowd, right? You want to be associated with these, these people and their social proof. If these people were, you know, said that, yes, I, I want to be part of this podcast, then I feel some additional pressure to be on there. We give them, we, we put some choices in. So again, uh, instead of leaving it open, we, we give, you know, uh, choice A versus choice B versus choice C, you know, we can, we can start with just a, a conversation or if you want to set up your time 
right away, we can do either one of those. And again, makes it reducing some of the friction. They don't have to, to do different things. So we apply some of those principles to the trying to obtain the right guest, I guess. Um, but I gotta, I, I'm gonna, Tim and I are gonna have to have a conversation. We're gonna have to do a analysis of, of how we interview and the questions that we do. And well, report back to me, report back to me with the results of that. I'll be very <laughs> curious to hear. <laughs> I know, but that's a great question. So thanks. Absolutely. Well, Kurt, it's been an honor to have you as a guest on the show and just to hear your, your broad spectrum of knowledge. Uh, where, if people uh, were interested in this interview, where would you uh, direct them to to find more information about your work or your podcast? Yeah, so obviously you can go out to the, the podcast website, www.behavioralgrooves.com. So it's Behavioral Grooves. Um, and all of our contact information is there. Otherwise, uh, Twitter, uh, I'm out on Twitter a fair amount, which is, and my handle is at what motivates. So you can reach me there. If there's any interest from a, from a business perspective and you're going, hey, I'd like to talk more about employee motivation or in engagement, uh, you can check out the Lantern Group, which is my company. And again, www.lanterngroup.com. And uh, again, contact and information is right there too. So you can send an email, but those are the ways. And we'll love, I, if you haven't, been able to tell I can talk for hours on this and it's the best part of my my week is when we get to talk to somebody about applying behavioral science so happy to just chat with most people about this at any point so I can talk for hours about that it's it's fascinating stuff to me so yeah I hope uh, the listeners enjoyed it as well and if you guys did go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, Roscoe's wetsuit and you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and pretty much any other major uh, podcast platform. So go ahead and check us out. Kurt, again, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. It was uh, great having a conversation with you. Well, Toby, I'm glad we finally were able to make it happen with all the comedy of errors of trying to set this up. But thank you. This has been fun. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I appreciate it. Thanks very much.